everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. This is a continuation of our episodes with Joel Bolivian on the top Christian ethics questions. Joel is a High Point Church attender and a philosophy PhD student at UW-Madison. This week, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Jill Reese, Nick's content and ministry coordinator, will talk with Joel about giving, particularly to answer the question, how demanding are Jesus' teachings about wealth and giving? In this episode, they talk about the first and second radical views, but there is more to this conversation that will be continued next week. If you have any questions from listening to this episode, or if there are any apologetics questions you want us to answer with Joel, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. So the next question is on poverty and affluence. How demanding are Jesus' teachings about wealth and giving? So Joel, could you frame that a little bit more for us before we dive in? Yeah, this is such an important issue. I think that when people think about Christian ethics, the thing that really, I guess, stirs them is questions that also stir me, of course, questions about, say, abortion, questions about sexuality. And I think those are super important. But I think that at the heart of the gospel, there is a deep, deep concern for the least well-off. There's a deep concern for generosity. And Jesus just talked, he talks about wealth so often. And so I think to be faithful apprentices to him and to be a part of his renewal project of creation, we have to think carefully about wealth and what we're doing with our wealth Mm -hmm. and turn to Rabbi Jesus to learn from him about what we should do with it. So Mm -hmm. let's just start with a few interesting facts about Can I just jump in just quickly here? I also think it's important to point out to believers now that the way American evangelical Christians are thinking and behaving about wealth usually is pretty disconnected from the, the, from the history of the Christian church throughout Mm -hmm. most of the history of the Christian Mm -hmm. church. Wow. People, I think sometimes things, well, you know, Jesus was very focused on this, but he was a, he was a wandering rabbi and he recognizes that if you have to have a home and stuff that you have to pay for things. But even like a a philosopher, like St. Thomas Aquinas, who was sort of a giant of the Christian tradition, ethically speaking, believed that your wealth beyond what was spent for your needs and what was spent for the maintenance of your profession. So like money you would spend on tools or basically business overhead. He termed it in Latin superflua or that which hmm. is unnecessary That's so and believe that Christians should give basically all of it away. And so um, Christians today who feel very comfortable giving away actually very little proportionately to what they earn, who are very affluent by historical and probably contemporary standards, um, we just need to realize we're way out of step with the history of the Christian church. And so the stuff Joel's going to talk about, you might think is kind of like out of left field. There's all this philosopher guy talking from his blah, blah, blah. But no, like it's important to realize the tradition you've evolved in politically, culturally, societally. And if you want to be an imitator of Jesus, you have to imitate him in everything. And it, it just doesn't do like Joel was insinuating to speak very self-righteously or or maybe just righteously about sexuality and abortion and these sorts of things. And then just pretend all this giving wealth, poverty stuff just doesn't exist. Which is what, which is what it not not only does it feel like that to some of our progressive neighbors and non Christian neighbors, but it it very well may feel like that to to Jesus. Dang, I don't have a mic to drop, but like I'm (laughs) dropping my air mic. Yeah, so a philosophy that you're gonna you're gonna like go into right now. I I don't want people to think that that's dry that it's dry. It's getting at very vital issues in all of our lives as followers of Christ, as His disciples, and if we're regenerate in Him. The effect should be that we become more like him. And in and the the question of poverty and affluence is a big ethical question. Mm-hmm. Um, it is I, one that probably bothers politically progressive people more than it bothers other people. But their claim that it should bother all of us is a claim that Christian faith historically has found very credible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important, and I'm excited to dive into it, because no matter what perspective we're coming from, in our culture today, we're so it's so easy for us to distance ourselves from people in different socioeconomic um, like places than us. And so, mm. yeah, it's just easy to be really distant about this and to think about it in terms of like we can read about it, we can um, tweet about it, <laughs> yeah. no matter what 
like side politically we might be on, but to be in real relationship and really study what Jesus says. Yeah. So to to be clear, what we're going to explore right now with Joel is the philosophy of it, which is an important first principle. So go ahead, Joel, why don't you dive in there? Yeah. And and the theology of it too, right? I mean, I think what you were saying was like super, super good. And I'm just really moved by a quote by one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Craig Keener. Hmm. He says that he has this really nice commentary on the gospel of Matthew. And when he's commenting on Jesus's teachings on wealth, he says, many professing Christians before Luther were wrong about justification by faith. Is it possible that most Western Christians today wrongly miss Jesus's explicit teaching about sacrifice? And that's like a chilling quote to me. And I, I think that some people, when they hear this stuff, they get discouraged and they, they might think like, gosh, like, am I succeeding in my discipleship to Jesus? If that quote is true, but I just want to encourage the listeners, like discipleship to Jesus is a venture and a journey into a good and beautiful life. And when we assimilate our lives to his life, we start to live that good and beautiful life. We start to reap the rewards of it. And so whatever room is left for us to grow in our discipleship to Christ, it's going to produce fruit. It's going to be a beautiful thing because Jesus lived a good and beautiful mm-hmm. life. I, I think also like, that's really exciting. I mean, imagine yeah. if that was yeah. true. That means if we got this, we could be on the verge of a second reformation. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you want to say something, Jill? Oh, no, I was just going to, I was going to say that um, it, you had some facts you were going to dive into for us to think about first. Yeah. Right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So just a few quick facts about generosity and poverty. Um, so since the nineties, the global poverty rate has gone down by more than half. This is really exciting. So before the nineties, it was around 30%, 30% of the world's population lived in poverty that was so extreme to be life-threatening. And to give you a feel for how we measure poverty, it's roughly something like if you're living on what would be the equivalent of a dollar ninety a day, whatever the purchasing power is of a dollar ninety in your country, if you're living on that a day or less, then you're living in poverty. Mm-hmm. And there are questions about like how we get that 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 standard. Um, it's somewhat arbitrary, but it has to do in part with like uh, health and caloric intake, how many calories you're taking in. So. I won't get into how like development econ- economists think about this, but basically if you're living on a dollar 90 or less a day, then you're living in poverty. And so, you know. that's usually the phrase is extreme poverty, right? Joel? Yeah. Yeah. So this, that is life threatening poverty. Right. And yeah. it's not just, you don't have a TV. Like this is right. defined by your yeah. life is continually at risk or the life of your offspring. That's like exactly right. Mm-hmm. Like right. water. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Cause I think some people will be like, poverty hasn't gone down by that much. And Technically, extreme poverty. Yeah, people because some of these people have gone from a dollar ninety a day to four dollars a day, yeah. and a lot of people would be like, they're still poor. Yeah, but mm-hmm. but at four dollars a day, people start buying medicine for their children. They start sending their kids to school. There's like major developmental things that happen at that threshold, and I think that's one of the things you're getting in here. So it's yeah. so when Joel says poverty in this context, oftentimes when you hear people talk, they'll use the phrase extreme poverty. I just want to make sure our listeners have yeah. that clear, because if they go to like the coffee shop and they're like, you know, poverty's decreased by, and like somebody will tell them they're idiots, and I don't want them to blame yeah. us. Good, <laughs> yeah, that would be my fault. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, so, but that's so an enormous accomplishment. It, it an is. Enormous it really is. It really is, and. And what's also interesting is that generosity is positively correlated with religiosity. So the most religious tend to give the most. Um, so those are some positive things, but there are some things to like be cautious about here. So a lot of research is showing that more and more of the middle class is giving less. Hmm. And if that trend continues and it seems to be continuing, then soon less than 50% of the middle class will be giving to charity. Right now in the United States, the most the most generous people are the wealthiest. Um, they're giving, at least in absolute terms, they're giving the most money. Although what's interesting is there are, there are some studies showing that um, very, very poor people in the United States give a large percentage of their income, not a, a large absolute value, but a large percentage of their income. So there might be um, something about being around need might produce more generosity. And there's actually some interesting studies showing that 
if you're a wealthy person and you live in an integrated, diverse context, you're more likely to give than if you live in an insulated place where everyone's just like you, everyone's just wealthy. So that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Totally. So, so yeah. another thing is the wealth gap is diverging dramatically. The wealthiest are getting way, way wealthier. Um, mm-hmm. And look, everyone's getting wealthier. Even the poor are being lifted out of out of um, their condition. But the the wealthiest are getting uh, wealthier even quicker. I mean, it's it's like an exponential rate. Um, yeah, I was um, listening to an economist yesterday who was saying he wrote a book like Ten Trends You Wouldn't Know that are mm-hmm. scientific trends you would know, and the the trend is is that everyone will be at least seven times richer in a hundred years than they are right now. Oh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that you can still have exponential differences in yeah. people, which, That's which are exactly the case. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and it's, it's important to go back to this point of extreme poverty. Even if extreme poverty is being dealt with, there are other factors that continue to be a problem. Uh, poor healthcare in developing countries is real. There are treatable diseases that continue to be a problem. Female mortality rates are quite high in developing countries, probably as a result of um, poor access to medical resources uh, that help in those processes. Um, there's also a lack of higher education in developing countries. What's encouraging is that um, primary school education has been almost universally achieved. That's outstanding. But Mm -hmm. in developing countries, secondary and higher education, getting college degrees is um, quite low. And that can, that can be a major stumbling block to a country getting out of poverty. So yeah, look, there are, there's, there's really interesting research showing that, you know, lots of wealthy countries are giving a lot, but some people are starting to give less. And I think we just need to be mindful of what this says about us as a church, where we fall on that spectrum. And I'll just leave one with one last interesting data point here. The number of the number of effective charities mm. is growing. And let's distinguish between like what what some people are calling effective charities versus non-effective. Um, around this, around this, I'd say around the turn of the century, there was a major push for evaluation and for investigation into the effectiveness of non-government organizations or charities. And a lot of people have this concern that when you donate to a charity, you're, you're kind of throwing your money out the window because these charities are not efficient with their money. A lot of it goes to administrative costs and so on. But there's a, a big push to actually evaluate charities. And so if you go to givewell.org, there is a, a few dozen charities that have been evaluated by rather stringent standards. Um, and you can go on and take a look at what, what this evaluation does. But basically, we have pretty good reason to think that there are a number of charities out there that are quite effective, quite efficient. And so you shouldn't be concerned that if you give your money to a charity, it's not going to be used wisely. Um, there, are, there are plenty of good, effective charities out there, mm-hmm. and you can find some of them on givewell.org. Uh, mm-hmm. About effective charities, are you? so you mentioned efficiency. Um, are they also avail- evaluating the effectiveness of like long-term help in those. Cause I've, I've, there's a book called toxic charity and charity detox that talk more about like, are these actually helpful to the person being helped? Like, do they get them out of poverty? Do they like help their lives change or is it just giving them something for the moment that they need? So I'm wondering like, the effectiveness that you're talking about, is it mostly just like what? on the side of the charity, the, the efficiency well, let, of it? Let me give you an example. Cause like, so, so yeah. I went to the website. Mm-hmm. I think every single one, except for the Helen Keller international is a disease prevention okay. charity, which are very easy to evaluate okay. and highly effective. Like deworming mm-hmm. is one of the high, most right. highly effective. Cause you give a kid a pill or two, and they're going to be clear of worms for like six months. It's extremely inexpensive mm-hmm. and highly helpful for a child's nourishment. And if you go on this webpage, what you'll find is virtually all of these are either malaria prevention or deworming, right? Yeah. Okay. So it is in fact true that these sorts of missions are highly effective. Right. The problem is it's almost like going from math to sociology when mm-hmm. you start trying to evaluate other kinds of charities. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes very difficult 
to say, okay, what kind of charity helps poor kids get better jobs when they're 25? Right. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of charities are much harder to, to go after. So, mm-hmm. But it is good to be able to say, here are some charities that definitely help. Yeah. Right. We know that they help and they're, they're useful. But a lot of the charity that Christians think of can, is, can we make poor people not poor? Can we help people be more productive? Can we help people reach their potential? So, for example, um, Joel was using that category of extreme poverty. One of the other categories that's been used, at least since the American Civil Rights Movement, and is talked about at the UN sometimes, is the idea of people having the the opportunity to reach their potential. Hmm. Um, it's been popular since the nineteen fifty later nineteen fifties and American early nineteen sixties. In like in a war against poverty, that people can become themselves or what they can become, and getting people there is is a very mystifying thing to, mm-hmm. to research as well as mm-hmm. to achieve. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think too, I mean, what part of what makes it difficult to evaluate charities that are doing work, say on education is that we need studies that have longevity that we can carry out mm-hmm. for years and into like a child adulthood. And it's just so hard to fund those kind of studies. It's hard to stay right. on top of um, the, the, the sample group. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some there are some studies like this. There was one conducted in the United States showing that investments into early childhood education have really positive benefits later on in life. Um, so I'm thinking about a study that was done near Detroit, Michigan. Um, so in mm-hmm. my home state, but but it is it is far harder to evaluate those sorts of studies. And I think something Nick is saying mm-hmm. is absolutely right. The question is, what what are we aiming for when we give to charities? Are we aiming mm-hmm. to merely get someone out of poverty. And, and and it's worth asking, is that the only worthwhile goal? And so in addition to potentialities or capabilities, as it's sometimes put, I think just just improving someone's well-being, mm-hmm. I think is worthwhile. And it's very gospel-centered. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there are multiple dimensions other than income. A lot of development economists mm-hmm. are moving away from the income model. It's a very like big trend in the 21st century. And we're moving towards more uh, holistic approaches to mm. poverty alleviation, where we're not just thinking about income, we're thinking about health, education, we're thinking about right. all sorts of dimensions. So, okay. which yeah. then makes a measurement exponentially harder. Yeah, yeah, it's fair. Oh. Yeah, it's fair. that makes sense. But I, I, right. I do think that this is a movement, though, in among all charities, religious and non, and government programs and non-government programs, um, to say to try to use some kind of empirical standard. Mm-hmm. Or whether or not what we're doing is actually making a difference. And I think I've seen this in Christian charities as well as all other charities. Once you get a job in the charity, you want to keep getting a paycheck. And once you do things, you you want to believe that it's working and helping. And you there, there are all these sort of natural scleroses that build up with human nature in charities. And nobody wants to admit them. And it's very difficult to stop things once you start them and so on. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. there are a lot of these perverse incentives in all charity work. Um, as there is in all organizations. And so trying to overcome these with by using empirical tools, I think is generally a good thing. Whether or not it will bear out for great results in the next 50 years is a big question. Right. Most of our escaping of extreme poverty are gains in India and China that mostly came from them opening up their economies and creating new economic opportunities for people in them. So the, so market freedom, not governed by not created by governments, but by people's initiative and creativity produced most of these economic gains. And it wasn't the brilliance of these people that did great, you know, though the, um, the millennium initiative in Africa, which sought to use malaria medications and some other things helped, helped some of those countries, um, get to some of those countries. Well, I don't want to say helped for sure. Some of those countries achieved many of the gains that they were after. And it's reasonable mm-hmm. to think that the millennium project, helped them achieve that by helping with health and those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I, just sure. to add to that, I, I have this, like this nagging criticism in the back of my mind that comes up anytime, um, anytime I look into the literature on the ethics of poverty alleviation, or when I talk to students about it, there's always this concern that the real solution is going to be political. The real solution is going to be economic. And there's nothing I can do mm-hmm. as a Westerner to, to bring that about. And so um, maybe I want to give, but I just, I don't want to just throw my money at an issue if it's mm, not going to make mm-hmm. a difference. And I understand that, that concern. And it, and to, to a large extent is true. A lot of economic development, as Nick is saying, comes about through political reformation, right? Let's get rid of corruption. Let's get rid of wars. Wars are notoriously associated with poverty. 
Um, that's not something I can control. On the other hand, I just want to point back to these effective charities. These charities are improving well-being, um, health, for example. Mm-hmm. But there's also just a lot of other things we can do uh, to improve the, the plight of the least well-off around mm-hmm. the world. So, for example, yeah. early childhood cash- malnutrition is very is very detrimental to people's potential. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and think about too. Um, there's a lot of research on what are called conditional cash transfers, um, where someone will sign up to receive a cash transfer if they achieve a certain condition. So, for example, this happened in Mexico in the early 90s. The Mexican government offered parents of young children a certain amount of cash every month if they would make sure that their child was in school for that month. And this program called Progressa turned out to be incredibly successful and was sort of like the blueprint for subsequent programs like that. Um, so a lot of economists are very optimistic about conditional cash transfers, and there are there are places you can go, um, like give directly, where you can actually donate money, and it's like it's given to, you know, low income people around the world who want to start up a business, who want to put their kids in school, but who just need that incentive, who need that safety net, and so, you know, to those of you who are concerned mm-hmm. about the mass economic impact that's needed um, to alleviate poverty, I just want to say. Don't underestimate the importance of a drop in a bucket yeah. because that drop in the bucket is saving lives and mm-hmm. those lives matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah and even like one of the things that was popular in the Christian church for a while was microloans, both out mm-hmm. in and outside. Yeah. yeah. And microloans have been, were like really good in some studies, really bad in others. And then, but, exactly. but microloans have gone through a number of iterations now where after 25 years, we're much better at understanding under what conditions, in what situations and so on microloans tend to be highly productive economically. And then which ones you're just throwing your money in the garbage. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so some things that even sometimes you'll find out that this charity, that charity was very unhelpful, unhelpful, or you're, you'll feel, you'll hear people attacking it. Make sure that you're dealing with the iteration that's existing now, because good. there mm-hmm. has been yeah. a lot of focus on trying to be effective and that's poverty good. is never going to be effective entirely, but, but nor is anything humans do. Right. I mean, so right. much of business and work in the church and stuff is, is pretty ineffective. Mm-hmm. We don't want to hold charities up to standards that we don't meet ourselves and then expect them mm-hmm. to meet them perfectly. You know? That's really helpful. All right. Let's dive into some philosophical views on how much we should be giving. And is this as Christians then? Or like how much we should be giving as Christians? Is that what we're covering? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. So, I mean, the views we're going to consider, if they're true, they apply to anyone, regardless of your... Okay. your religious persuasion. And the question is, well, are they true? You know, So mm-hmm. it's, it's often helpful to start on ends of the spectrum. And these are views, to be clear, these are views about how much you should be giving, how stringent and demanding morality is when it comes to poverty alleviation. So the first radical view is associated with a very prominent philosopher, not a believer, uh, he's an atheist named Peter Singer. And his take on this is that we have a moral responsibility to sacrifice the vast majority of our wealth surplus to aid those living in poverty. So he sounds a lot like um, Aquinas. Is that who you were mentioning earlier, Nick? Yeah. So let's just define some terms here. What's your wealth surplus? I mean, roughly your wealth surplus is whatever you're not spending. It's the part of your income that you're not spending on your necessities in your context, Um, right? So on clothing, food, shelter, um, healthcare, and- Necessary clothing, food, yeah. transportation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Leather and seats don't don't figure into that. That's exactly right. And look, Peter Singer concedes that in some places, what's necessary is going to differ from what's necessary in other places. So to get to, to work, I might need a car. But look, I don't need a luxurious car. To keep my job here in the United States, I might need a nice pair of clothes. But I don't need multiple nice outfits. Those are all luxuries. And he argues that the value of a life always outweighs the value of any luxury I have. And so if there are lives in jeopardy, being threatened by death because of poverty, I have a moral responsibility to surrender and sacrifice those luxuries in order to save those lives. He gives this really clever thought experiment that's you know, really popular in, in uh, intro to ethics classes. It's the, the pond analogy or the pond experiment. So imagine you're walking past this pond and you see a child drowning. No one else is around. You're not responsible for the child drowning, but you could easily wade in. It would be very difficult and pull the child out. Here's the catch. 
if you wait in, you're going to ruin your new shoes. They're just going to get destroyed. And they cost maybe $80. And he asks, do you have a moral responsibility to save this child, even if it means you're going to lose your fancy shoes? And the obvious answer is yes, of course, forget the shoes. Like you Mm -hmm. should save the child. And then he ups the stakes a little bit. You're on your way to a fancy dinner. And if you stop to save that child right now, you're going to lose your dinner reservation. There goes your fancy dinner. Do you have a moral responsibility to stop and save the child? Yes, of course. The the value of the child outweighs the fancy dinner. Now imagine that you parked your fancy car on some train tracks and you're going to move the car because there's a train coming. But if you don't stop to save the child right now, she'll drown. But if you do stop to save the child, your car is going to get smashed. Your fancy car is going to get smashed. Do you have a moral responsibility to save the child even if it means you'll sacrifice your fancy car? And as hard as it may be, like, yes, of course, the life of the child outweighs the value of your car. And he says, if you think that for any luxury I bring up in the pawn case, you should save the child and sacrifice the luxury, then by parity of reasoning, you should do the same in real world cases where there are children drowning, quote unquote, from poverty. If you don't do the same, if you don't sacrifice your luxuries to save those lives, you are being inconsistent in mm-hmm. your thinking. Mm-hmm. Any, mm-hmm. any thoughts? So, I mean, look, so, so he takes that argument and says that, you know, um, he says, in the world as, I, as it is now, I can see no escape from the conclusion that each one of us with wealth surplus to his or her essential needs should be giving most of it to help people suffering from poverty so dire as to be life-threatening. That's right. I'm saying that you shouldn't buy that new car, take that new cruise, redecorate the house, or get that pricey new suit. After all, a $1,000 suit could save five children's lives. Hmm. What do y'all, what do y'all think about that? I think it's a helpful um, thought experiment in that, like if we we can imagine ourselves seeing a real human before our eyes, um, so close to death and that helps us in the sense that we don't we don't think about that we're not thinking about all the children all over the world right when we're shopping for example mm-hmm. <laughs> so it is a helpful thought experiment to to um remind us about the reality of what our money is doing and can do yeah um and who we're using it for Right. And who might need it instead. So I think it's helpful to bring us to that um, pers- more personal human relationship. Yeah. I have a number of objections to that thought experiment. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I don't know that we should take the time to go into all of them. I mean, I, I think that like for, like, I think for example, in a, you could, you could also argue that, as long as any child's life is in danger, any other charitable action or non-necessary action must be suspended. Mm. So you couldn't you couldn't give money to help p- kids read better, right? If there was a kid anywhere else in the world who dying. was in danger of dying, yeah. Um, which would render most charity inert, at least for the present. For example, I think also from from a, from a Christian perspective, there's the there's the thought counterfactual that if I believe that hell is real. And that people who don't believe will experience eternal conscious torment. That's worse than death. And therefore I should give every superfluous bit of my income for evangelism Mm. rather than poverty alleviation. Because the one most grabbing need Mm -hmm. must trump all other things until it's taken care of, which of course it can't be. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, Peter Singer bothers me because he, the, the other places <laughs> where I've read him, the other places where I've read him are where he, because like, uh, it's not, it's not humans for Singer. It's persons mm. because mm. he doesn't believe that a newborn baby is necessarily a person and right. argued, has argued in his career that he thought if abortion is right, which he thinks is right, that also it would be therefore morally okay to extinguish the life of a just born child until that child achieves something like consciousness and personhood, hmm. which I, you know, I'll give him his props for being consistent. Sure. Um, but it, that it bothers me that he would, he would argue this way, that way, and then just not, but that that's more of a personal attack than it is a, I mean, it, it, formally that's just an ad hominem fallacy, but it's just, 
it still bothers me that I look, I know his thinking is not good in another area. You know what I mean? We're, we're all guilty of ad hominems, especially yeah. when it comes to Peter Singer. It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. easy. Yeah. So, but, but I, I do think that there is some power in that. I think most people who want to morally grapple with this at some point, go down some version of that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if I, if I buy this chocolate ice cream, I'm not giving it to a starving orphan, mm-hmm. which is true. Which is true. Yeah. And, and that, and that doesn't just make, create an objection to some 30% of this spending of our money. Basically every dollar you spend, you're buying more than you need. Yeah. And so even if you would buy food, you wouldn't buy that food. And even if you buy a car, you wouldn't buy that car. And even if you get clothes, you would buy those clothes. Yeah. And so it, it's, it literally touches every, every penny you spend. Mm-hmm. It yeah. does. It can be, it gets crippling though, in the sense that you still, it doesn't help you with the choices of if there's always, I mean, there's billions of children dying all over the world. So mm. it gets into the question of which one do I save and how close to me is that person that I'm helping. And that also gets into what Nick was saying, like what kind of, like what kind of help and what kind of saving, but even just the, the quantity question of, I think some people feel like there's too much to do who do i pick um or what do i pick and so you you don't think that would be a that would defeat the question though like if if you change if you change the question to say there's two children drowning in the pond and you only have time to save one of them everything else being the same yeah if you think you should save the one when it's only that one you wouldn't save none if there were two right you'd still say that's true but i do think people are are morally and intellectually crippled by the thought of how many people there are to help. Yeah, sure. But that's a psychological objection, right? right. Rather than a yes. philosophical one. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It also can be an excuse. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm saying. Because yeah. if you want to save a child's life, it's really not that hard to, find a way to do it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are, yeah, it's a really tricky argument to, to respond to. And it, it does plan all sorts of feelings and intuitions. And I, I think. I think, I mean, one of the problems is it plays on our intuitions about immediate threats. Um, there might be something mm. morally different about a threat that's right in front of me versus a threat that's across the sea. And some philosophers like Peter Singer th- think that that shouldn't make any difference. But I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not so convinced. But I, I think the point both of you are making about how Singer's view neglects other goods, I think that's really on point. I mean, I think that um, the moral life isn't just about saving lives. It's about improving lives that already exist. And, you know, a lot of philosophers have pointed out that, look, we have all sorts of moral responsibilities, responsibilities to our families, our children, our country. And if we spend all of our wealth surplus attending to the needy, which would be a really good thing, we would actually neglect other moral obligations we have. Um, and it seems counterintuitive that we, um, that I should say as a father uh, forego buying the, I don't know, the, the new bike for my, my child, because, Hey, that bike costs, you know, 200 bucks and that could save one child from death. Like that means I would never be able to invest into my child in a way that conf- conveys love to them. And that seems counterintuitive. It seems like morality doesn't require us to, to do that. In fact, morality seems to permit that we invest and love our families, our nearest and our dearest in meaningful ways. Um, so, so I think maybe that's where the, the thought experiment goes wrong, but, mm-hmm. but it does push us to, I think, mm-hmm. consider what's valuable. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the big takeaways, whatever you think about Peter Singer is you should think, even if, even if morality doesn't require that I do what he thinks it does, I, I, I probably should be doing a bit more. Yeah. And I think too, there's an, there's an objection that comes up against Peter Singer that I just, I want to cl- just clear up. It's, it's an understandable one, but it's, it's, it misses the point. A lot of people will say, well, if all the wealthy gave their wealth surplus, it would destroy the economy. But his view isn't that everyone should start doing this simultaneously. He says that you should start doing it given that not everyone else is doing it. You have so much more to give because not everyone else is carrying their moral weight. If everyone was giving, we'd all have to give very little. It's precisely because not everyone's giving that the burden is so stringent. Nick, do you have pastoral thoughts before we move on to another philosophical perspective? I have so many things to say about that. We just yeah. keep moving. <laughs> okay. So Are there any that we there. like that we need to 
here for clarity's purposes, clarity purposes. Uh, while you're thinking that through, I'll just say this. There is, there is one Christian philosopher, uh, Tom Crisp at Biola University, really remarkable philosopher who has recently argued that Jesus's teachings on loving your neighbor require a similar way of living that to pursue the well-being or the shalom of our neighbor, which he thinks is what the love command is get, ha, you know, asking us to pursue. We have to, we should be giving up luxuries so that the shalom of others is achieved. And um, he, so he differs a little bit from singer. We're not just trying to save lives. We're trying to bring about shalom, but it requires immense amounts of sacrifice. Um, and I can provide a link to that paper if we want to upload it, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that what you're calling the, the radical view here. Um, so one, it doesn't admit to degrees, the view itself. So mm-hmm. um, on one level, you could say if there's any truth, because it's not like a proportional truth. It's like, well, it's not like it's 40% true. And so you should give 40% more, Yeah, right? It's in some ways it's either true or it's false. And if it's true, then it's, entirely true and the full effect falls upon you. So in, in one sense, it, it does, it, it can't really function as something that, well, you should give a little more, right? It, it, no, either you should give everything of your surplus or, you, or it's, or the view is yeah. false. Right. I, I, so I, I think for Christians, it's interesting that Jesus does not command this of people. He could have, and he, he doesn't. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. It may be it may be better for us to attend to his own commandments about generosity, but his own commandments about generosity are are pretty stringent. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I would say one thing about that. Even if Jesus didn't command this particular view, it might be that this is still the right view, right? So we shouldn't expect that Jesus is going to command every moral fact that is out there. Some of these moral facts are revealed to us. And some of them might be discernible through philosophical reflection. But if they're moral facts, they're ones that God presumably endorses. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be that Peter Singer's right, even if Jesus doesn't teach this. But I, I yeah, I mean, I don't think Peter Singer's right. So long right, as Jesus you know. doesn't teach against it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Um, All right. Did you have more to say on that, Joel? No. Okay. All right. Let's move on. You have another radical view that you want to point out. Yeah, good. So the first radical view says you need to give all your wealth surplus on pain of being immoral. And the second radical view kind of goes in the complete opposite direction and says, actually, we have to do, we, we, we have very little to do. We have very little moral responsibility to aid those living in poverty. Why is that? Well, this view is known as ethical libertarianism, and it should be distinguished from political libertarianism. Political libertarianism says something like, you know, the, that there should be very little government intervention. The government should intervene only to protect rights and to stop, you know, invading forces. Um, but as far as like government interventions to promote health, uh, welfare, like that's not the government's responsibility. It's just there to protect rights and to punish wrongdoers. That's political libertarianism, roughly. Ethical libertarianism says that we have we only have responsibilities to refrain from harming others and then to compensate those we have harmed. So these are sometimes called negative duties. I just have a duty not to harm you, not to interfere with your life. But I don't have this really robust duty to make your life better. The only time I have a duty to make things better for you is when I am causally responsible for your harmed condition. So Jan Narvison is a philosopher who has endorsed this view. He has a really interesting quote that captures what he's getting at. He says, if someone is starving, we may pity him or we may be indifferent. But the question so far as our obligations are concerned is this, how did he get that way? If it was not the result of my previous activities, then I have no obligation to him and may help him out or not as I choose. If it was such a result, then of course I must do something. If you live and have long lived downstream from me, and I decide to dam up the river and divert the water elsewhere, then I have deprived you of your water and must compensate you by supplying you with the equivalent or else desist. But if you live in the middle of a parched desert and it does not rain so that you are faced with death from thirst, that is not my doing and I have no compensating to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is, 
is this view clear? It it yeah. seems clear to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and the idea is that the next step is to say, look, we haven't really harmed those who are living in extreme poverty. Their their plight is not the result of my doing. Um, how could it be? Like I'm one person. And so following ethical libertarianism, I have no stringent duties to compensate them, to help alleviate their suffering. I might, look, Narvison allows that you could do it out of the kindness of your heart, but you're not morally required to do so. There's no moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's your choice. It's mm -hmm. what philosophers call a supererogatory action. It's, it's like above and beyond morality. Whereas Peter Singer says, no, you're not going above and beyond when you help. You're doing exactly what mm -hmm. your moral responsibility is. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, look, I think that ethical libertarianism is completely not viable from a Christian worldview. Mm. Um, I mean, j even just on philosophical grounds, I think it's implausible on its face. I mean, clearly we have obligations to help those, e even those we haven't harmed. Um, just well, seems clear that I, why if you're not arguing from a Christian worldview, like, I, like, I, I think that part of the part of the reason why we think that we're our brother's keeper is because is there's sacredness in them that comes from their bearing of the image of the holy god if you don't believe a human is that sort of object mm -hmm. then what does make it obligatorily incumbent upon you to help someone that has nothing to do with you otherwise yeah that's a really good question and that leads us into what philosophers call metaethics like what is morality what's the grounds of moral obligation I think that, and I'm not necessarily defending this view, but there are those, you know, again, they're called moral realists. They think that there are moral facts and, and that those facts don't necessarily depend on God, though you can be a moral realist and think that. But they would say I mean, any number of things. They're going to say, well, look, suffering is a bad thing. And insofar as it's within your power to alleviate suffering, gratuitous suffering, at very little cost to yourself, you morally ought to do so. It's the badness of suffering and the goodness of helping another person that obligates you to help. So they're going to say something like suffering is bad. So that creates an obligation and persons are inherently valuable. And um, there, there are other yeah, ways the, of getting the at the this. Second premise is a thing, right? Like why are they inherently valuable? Because if you mm -hmm. were to sell them as slaves, you could sell them for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so therefore we know they're monetary. Like what is the, what is the value and how is and it? Why doesn't that? And the issue is why doesn't that slide into some kind of relativism, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. I mean, I think you're asking the right <laughs> questions. I I think that the the moral realist who's not a divine command theorist, they're going to say, um, the the buck just stops with be, them being a person. There's no more fundamental explanation for why they're valuable. To be a person is to be inherently valuable. Hmm. And uh, and and then they might pose the same question to you. They might say. Well, if you think that being made in the image of God makes you inherently valuable, why? Why does that make it inher inherently valuable? So, I mean, I'm not endorsing this dialectic, but I, I can see that mm -hmm. it would it would go that way. Um, and, yeah, and but I, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there are answers to that. I mean, like, I think one of the issues with, with part of the issues with all versions of libertarianism is the denial of the the tribal instinct or the inherency instinct that, that, there's, that there's something inherent about us that flows from some kind of empathy that we are bound to each other morally. And the, and libertarianism in all its forms basically says not so fast. Like um, if I didn't create your situation, I'm not responsible for it. And you may be responsible for it or lots of other, other people might be responsible for it. Right. There's now there's problems with libertarianism. Like does a mother have a right to have responsibilities to her child? Right, so there's there's pro-choice positions that'll say, when a woman becomes pregnant, she can abort the child because she has no inherent responsibility to that child as a mother. Right, Peter Kreeft has said things like, "That's a very interesting way to define mother." But the the idea that a mother has responsibility, like her first responsibility, is to not kill her child. Right, that is that gets back to the issue of like Scottish, you know, Scottish Enlightenment and Scottish realism, whether or not whether or not in fact that's a moral fact, right? Whether that's a properly basic or a foundational belief or whatever. But that premise, that's where, that's where you get into the whole issue of how does one substantiate such a premise that has not been abided by for most of human existence. And in fact, the opposite has been abided by for most of human existence. Yeah. There seems to be very many people. I mean, just 
the existence of slavery in all societies that weren't affected in one way or another by Christianity right. endured. I think, though, that we should distinguish between two things, moral epistemology and moral ontology. So moral epistemology asks the question, how do we know that this is a moral fact? How do we know that it's wrong to do this or we, that we have a responsibility to help those, even those we haven't harmed? Whereas moral ontology then says, well, what, what is the grounds of that obligation? Where does that obligation come from? And so on. Where does the value, the inherent value come from? And I think that it's open to a non-believer to say, look, I don't necessarily have all my moral ontology figured out, but I have this, uh, this in- intellectual seeming, this intuition that I ought to help those that are suffering, even if I haven't harmed them. And I'll figure out the, uh, the meta ethics and the metaphysics of it later. But for now, I just, that's something I know. I know I ought to. And I, I think that's actually a respectable move to make. I don't think that we always need theory in order to know that something is true about reality. You know, I don't always have to understand the, you know, the nature of the space-time continuum to know that the space-time continuum is like curved and warped, right? Um, that's what science is telling us. Yeah, so, but I think one of the issues with, with the argument that you're making, Joel, is that it, it, very, at the very beginning of the talk, you talked about how intuitions can be used as warrant to justify something. That's right. So for example, if I think that torturing a baby is wrong, right? And I have intuitions along those lines that can warrant the fact that I may refrain from torturing a baby. That's right. That's different than arguing for obligation, which I think most people would recognize would have a, a stronger, would require a stronger warrant. And that warrant might come from the outside. You might be resistant to the idea, but that that obligation comes upon you nonetheless. And can, I think you say more in that case, why? you have to have a shared epistemology, right? The person who claims the obligation falls upon the unwilling receiver, you have to be able to say, no, it's not only that I'm warranted in doing it, but I'm arguing something more stringent that I can argue plausibly that you are obligated to do it too. That is, you should accept it because you should be able to see that it has a moral ontology that is in fact there. It is a moral fact. I see. Yeah. I I, I see what you're saying. I think that's really good, but I don't think- And libertarian is basically saying you can't do that. You can't do that without appealing to religion, or you can't do that without appealing to something you can't prove, and you can't cross. You have no bridge to cross the river of that epistemological ditch. Well, the libertarians saying that you can't do that because they just reject the premises upon which you're arguing. But I mean, I think that the premises they're rejecting are just inherently plausible when you when you just reflect on them. And I, so I think that I think what you're saying is really good, except I don't think that's the only way we. Um, have to argue for a position to, if I'm, if I'm trying to convince you that you have an obligation, I don't have to go into moral ontology and tell you, Hey, here's where morality comes from. Here's, here's what uh, makes humans intrinsically valuable. I can do something like this. I can say, just think about this case. You're walking past a pond and there's a child drowning. And all you have to do is wait in at little cost to yourself and save them. Do you, does it seem like you have a moral responsibility? And most people are going to come away thinking, yeah, it seems obvious that I ought to wade in and sacrifice my shoes. And that's all it takes to show that you have a moral responsibility to aid those that you haven't even harmed. I don't have to explain where their value comes from, where the obligation comes from. I just need to lead you in this simple thought experiment. And I I think the Christians should actually want this to be true. And I think the worldview tells them that this is actually how Mm. a lot of people will come to know things. We don't want non-believers to have to accept the Christian worldview before they can have moral knowledge. That that seems you know that seems um, problematic. I think we want to look out in the world and say even those non-believers they know and, and Scripture s- says that they do. They know that certain things are right and wrong. They don't have the right worldview to explain the value of things, to explain where these obligations come from. But nevertheless, they know. And so I think we shouldn't we shouldn't resist the the possibility and I would say reality that you can know deep things about your obligations without knowing the deep ontology or the deep grounds for those obligations. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. <laughs> anything, any, anything you want to add, Jill? I, I just, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Um, yeah, I think... I'm sure, yeah. I from the from the perspective of not knowing these philosophical arguments, I can see where they're coming from, but it does always beg the question to me, like, where are you getting that from? 
-hmm. And you can only, that can only take you so far if there isn't God. And so in the question of poverty, especially like we can argue philosophically what we feel like we, what we intuitionally, not just feel what we intuitionally think we should do. But the question for Christians is what does God say we should do? Because that's the extent to which we need to take it. Not what we philosophically come to with our own intuition. So, and so I, I, it's hard for me to think about this without just thinking about like, what does God require of us though? Right. Whether or not I can reason through it. (laughs) I do think relative to what Joel said before, although I, so, cause like I, I, I agree and disagree. Right. So I agree that Christians should believe that humans can come to the knowledge of moral propositions, moral mm-hmm. facts, without right. appeal to God, because, for example, Romans one assumes mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah. Ro- Romans one basically says that tr- all these truths were evident, mm-hmm. and because people chose to suppress them, they didn't come to a knowledge of God. Right. That assumes that there are truths in the world that one should be able to see that would lead you to mm-hmm. a knowledge of God. That means mm-hmm. your ability to see them can't come from your knowledge of God. Exactly. Otherwise, you wouldn't be more right. morally attackable for not seeing that God exists on the basis of them. So they, they have to be able to be seen apart from God. However, I, I also do believe, like what Joel said before, wouldn't it, isn't it a positive belief to believe mm-hmm. that if God exists, he would give us faculties such that we could mm-hmm. see things that are real and pursue truth? Mm-hmm. I think I think part of the issue here is, is that if somebody does see these moral facts, the question could easily then become, why do you see that moral fact? Right. Mm-hmm. You don't have to see that moral fact because of evolution, for example, nor would evolution make that view meaningful. If you have the view because of your herd instinct in which you evolved, it's still relative to your history, your natural history, and you could choose consciously now to reject it and not submit to it because it's it's the product of something else that's not obligatory. Right? But then secondly, I also think that it, it is helpful to say to people, it looks like the it looks like the moral fact you're looking for here is that human beings are made in God's image. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I I don't have any problem at all with secular people struggling with like this idea of how do we get to the idea that humans are in that valuable, mm-hmm. right? The idea that human beings are in fact sacred. If human beings are not sacred, then our moral obligations to them you can you can argue very plausibly are highly limited. Right, it's yeah. when human beings become something sacred, something that has a sort of inherent moral beauty that cannot be defaced, and that the moral status of that is fundamentally different than your relationship to all other objects and beings, even like animals. That that something like a, ki- a kid drowning in a pond can trump everything. The only reason that trumps everything is because humans know other humans are made in God's image, even if they don't want to know it. Mm-hmm. And so they have the intuition of the theological fact built into their conscience, like mm-hmm. Romans 1 says, even though they're currently theologically denying that theological truth, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's right for a, a Christian to say, you're, you're, you're trading with Christian ideas and you think you can do it based on your intuition, but the reason your intuition knows it is because it's responding to a moral fact that is there, that is explainable by the act of God Mm -hmm. creating us in his image and putting in us a knowledge of the sacredness of the other, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think recognizing the bankruptcy of the foundationalism, like like how they build that foundation that is bankrupt without that theological truth, or at least quite likely bankrupt or much weaker or something like Mm -hmm. that. I think is something that a Christian can argue for and not be content to say that a moral realist can know it. Well, it Mm -hmm. it just begs the question, how does the moral realist know it? Mm -hmm. Because human intuition, if they're supervenient on brains, like like, it gets you back into the mind, the mind brain problem and the problem of human consciousness. And how are we even conscious of these things in the first place? And how do we have moral knowledge? And if it's not the fact that our brains as they interrelate to or create mind are relating somehow to externally truthful objects, then any other explanation of how our mind produces these moral facts is epiphenomenal, right? It's, it's not rooted. It's something, it's a, it's a thing that happens. And if, if it be, if we recognize it's a thing that happens in our mind, it can be dispensed with. 
because it is a it is a effect even if it might make us feel really strongly that a person is valuable once we know the effect is ephemeral the intensity of the feeling is irrelevant mm-hmm. we can put it aside like anything else mm-hmm. it's because of that i think that aside from an argument for the existence of human mind that i do not think exists among any philosopher i do not think moral objectivism ultimately succeeds in defeating relativism when it draws mm-hmm. in science yeah Sorry, that was kind of a rant. That was, su- I mean, super great. Super, super great. I, I, I you can dissect it if we have three more hours. And so no. listeners should <laughs> yeah. not think. I mean, at one point, one of us has to stop talking about any of these right. issues. Yeah. And so. Yeah. I, I'll let, I'll let, we'll let that be the last word. I think that was really good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we had another question that we didn't get to even. Yeah, um, we, should, we should never let Joel give us more than one question. <laughs> There. And there's so much to say too we're, we're about just put this one up into a couple yeah. in podcasts, yeah. and then we could come back yeah. maybe and do a third one because I think people really want to hear about um, gender and oppression. I think that'll be a more yes. controversial conversation, but I think people will find it very interesting. Yep, yeah. that was our third question we didn't get to, so we will do another episode on that as well. Pending Joel's so. availability. Yes. Hey, I am. I'm, I'm quarantined, you guys, so I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah. All right. Well. If you have further questions off of what Joel has said as well, please send them in. And if you have any feedback, please send that to us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Yeah. And, Joel, and if, you thank have, you- if you have apologetics questions that you would really mm-hmm. love to hear yes. Joel and Nick talk about, then do send those in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Joel, thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you. So, okay. I'm going to hear like one last minute. This may not be an yeah. interesting minute, but um, the apologist that probably affected me more than any other Christian apologist, that is somebody who focuses on the defense of the rationality of Christian faith, is mm-hmm. a man named Ravi Zacharias. Mm-hmm. Ravi Zacharias is um, is like very close to passing away from spinal cancer. He mm-hmm. has been a faithful witness of the Christian faith for my whole adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, did he have any effect on you, Joel? And do you have any anything to say about his ministry or anything like that? I have nothing but positive things to say about Rabbi Zacharias. And one of his books that really spoke to me at an intellectual and existential level was a little book that he wrote in response to Sam Harris uh, back in the like mid two. It was like around 2007, 2008. I can't remember. But Sam Harris, an atheist, wrote a book called The End of Faith. And Rabbi Zacharias wrote a little response book called The End of Reason. And I just recommend getting that book. I don't agree with everything that Ravi says in that book, but Ravi is he, he's in touch with the heart of God. And that comes through in his defense of Christianity. And there's something so refreshing about that. I mean, I, I live in circles where people live in their heads and it's often very exhausting. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's really exciting and refreshing when you meet someone who has intellectual acumen, but also mm. just really is really tender and really loves the Lord. Mm. And that's something that's someone you want to be a like a disciple to, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there are I think that there are better apologists as far as you know robust analytic defenses of yeah. the Christian faith go. But Ravi has such a such a solid way of engaging with culture. I highly recommend getting into some of his mm-hmm. early work. Yeah. I've never I never saw him speak like on video or like any time where I listened to him speak where he forgot the person he t- was talking to was a human. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He, yeah. He'll ask for their name and like talk yeah. to them mm-hmm. as if it's like him in a coffee shop hanging out with them. It's, it's marvelous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think that every Christian could learn from that, that the guy whose job mm-hmm. it was to def- be the most cerebral in Christian ministry somehow got that you never forget the person you're talking to as a human being. I think that's really marked RZIM, that ministry and everybody who's part of it. He, mm-hmm. I think he was able to like convey that and really, and really bring that about. And I'm looking forward to some of his protégés like Michael Ramsey and so on to see how, sure. how they're going to, how mm-hmm. their work is going to develop. But I, mm-hmm. that's right. But yeah. I think for those believers listening, um, we're, we're losing a giant in the faith. We're mm-hmm. losing somebody who, was a role model his entire life. There were yeah. no secrets came out about him. He was faithfully married. He yeah. raised kids who follow the Lord. He he was consistent. 
and, a, mm-hmm. and as far as I could tell, a good man. I, I visited RZAM, talked to people who worked for him, mm. and they just they loved him. They thought he was great. Yeah, I mean, they had stuff they disagreed with him about, you know, but but they thought he was great. They loved him. So yeah. anyway, yeah, that's really good. It's a huge mm-hmm. loss, but a great legacy if we can choose not to forget it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we'll link some of those things in the show notes for you guys to look into. All right. Thank you for being with us today, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.